If we're doubling the amount of data that we throw at our models, it is reasonable to think that we might also be doubling the amount of verification that we need to do to be sure that they're doing the right thing. All right, everyone, welcome to another episode of the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington, and today I'm joined by Dee Scully. Dee is a director at Google Brain. Before we get into today's conversation, be sure to take a moment to head over to Apple Podcasts or your listening platform of choice. And if you enjoy the show, be sure you subscribe and leave us a five-star rating and review. Dee, welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. Welcome to the show. Hi, Sam. Thanks for having me. I am looking forward to diving into our conversation. We're going to be talking about data-centric AI and data debt. This topic of debt is one that, at least in our community, you are well known for. You wrote a paper, The Hidden Technical Debt in Machine Learning Systems, that at one point when we had our first TwimmelCon conference, all about MLOps and, and AI platforms, I heard later that some folks had a bingo game for when that little diagram that you created showed up in someone's talk. So uh, we'll talk a little bit about that. But before we do, I'd love to have you share a little bit about your background and how you came to work in the field. Oh, gosh, how I came to work in the field. So I I had a bit of a non-traditional path. So as an undergraduate, I was an art major. Oh, wow. And I was deeply concerned issues of visual narrative. And then I guess I graduated in the late 90s and discovered that I needed a job and became a teacher. I was a high school teacher in high schools around the world, taught in in the Middle East and Abu Dhabi for a while. And then I was in uh, Venezuela and Switzerland and California. Went back to grad school for education. And I was really concerned about, you know, what does it mean for a subject to be learnable? What, what does it mean for, for a concept to be learnable? Are some concepts inherently more, more difficult to learn than others? And I found that the education people didn't have a, a great set of concepts to draw on for that. Mm. But, you know, this is the early 2000s, you know, 2001 or so. I found that the machine learning people had actually thought about this a lot. And they had wonderful concepts like VC Dimensioned for talking about concept complexity and things like that. And I just kind of got hooked and realized, oh, no, I studied the wrong stuff. <laughs> so I went back and redid undergraduate courses that I, I hadn't done. And, uh, ended up doing a master's and a PhD at Tufts in machine learning, uh, sort of falling in love with the field that way. And then came to Google soon after that. At that time, my focus area was very much applied machine learning. Uh, started off by kicking out scammy and spammy advertisers from our, our systems. Uh, and this was in 2008 or so, at a time when machine learning wasn't necessarily the go-to tool for things like that. There were plenty of rule-based systems that were created by really smart people thinking carefully about, you know, what, what does it mean for something to be to be spam? And so, you know, I was able to be part of kind of the transition of systems moving from being hand-engineered code-based systems to being machine learning systems. And I've been sort of part of that journey ever since. It's been a wild ride. Mm-hmm. I bet. Is that what led to the interest in technical debt as a, a concept? Yeah. So... Over time at, at Google, I, I worked on this problem of finding scammy and spammy advertisers and kicking them out for several years. And then for a number of years after that, I, I worked on uh, Google's ad click-through prediction models, which turns out to be just a fascinating problem domain that uh, has all of the problems of being very large-scale, production-critical, latency-sensitive, with all kinds of feedback loops and other interesting machine learning and, and statistical problems. But it also has the problem that it needs to work every single second of every single day. Mm-hmm. And so I came to really appreciate, if you will, the importance of having systems that can be maintained over a long period of time. And we certainly 
ran into a bunch of the problems that we ended up writing about in the technical debt papers in these production settings of seeing, okay, well, what happens when you have a feature source that changes its semantics over time under the hood without someone telling you? Or when you have to migrate from one version to another of a given data dependency? What happens when there is a feedback loop that exists through some other related system uh, where the only connection is, is what data is being consumed? And so you know, getting to really cut my teeth in a, a production critical setting exposed me to a lot of those problems and helped to sort of motivate telling others about these things. And it turns out that these problems, they weren't unique to us and they, they weren't you know, one-off problems. They, they seem to be pretty general. They've resonated pretty strongly, I think, and pretty broadly for folks that are trying to do machine learning in production. You know, it's, it's funny because when you write a paper, you, you really kind of want it to stand the test of time and for to be relevant for many years. And this is one that I really wish kind of wasn't, you know? <laughs> in what sense? Here we are seven, eight years later, still like talking about machine learning and technical debt and things like that. You know? Got it. <laughs> I, I would like to live in a world where these problems are kind of capital S solved and, and they seem not to be, at least not in any yeah. sort of full or final sense. Although obviously folks are doing a much better job with, with these problems than we were, you know, back in the day. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So this podcast will be published in the context of a series of, of shows focused on data centric AI. And you've recently applied this idea of technical debt or, or debt to thinking about data. Maybe let's start by having you talk broadly about this idea of data-centric AI. Is it, what does it mean to you? How to, in what ways do you relate to it based on your experiences? Yeah, so I, the phrase data-centric AI came in contact with that sort of phrase through Andrew Ng, who you know, reached out to me and you know, we had some interesting discussions on this. I think that the overall point is that in the end, creating machine learning models just isn't that hard. And it's not that hard because a large number of people have spent a huge amount of time creating infrastructure and tools and toolkits and frameworks for helping people train and create machine learning models. So mm -hmm. packages like TensorFlow and PyTorch and Jax and all these things exist now in wonderful ways, and they're supported by fantastic cloud-based offerings. And so sort of the problem of how do you create a model is one that maybe 10 or 15 years ago was a very difficult one, has now become a relatively simple one. However, a model framework, platform, cloud service by itself isn't useful at all until you have data that you're feeding into that modeling system. Right. And so to a first approximation in the current day, 100% of the problem is gathering the appropriate data and figuring out what is uh, the right data to train our models on. Mm -hmm. You can see just the influence of even a really simple thing like getting more data. And when we're seeing things like the large language model world exploding in capabilities by exploding in data set sizes. Mm -hmm. And obviously when we're, we're gathering larger and larger data sets, it's not because we're gathering the same data point or the same information many times, it's that we're gathering an ever more diverse, ever broader set of sort of experiences and pieces of knowledge to, to throw at our modeling system. Mm -hmm. And so because it's no longer really a particularly hard challenge to create models, starting to focus on what is the big problem, which is to create the data, to curate the data, to figure out, okay, are we gathering the most appropriate data? Do we have data that is the most representative? That's gonna handle all use cases, perhaps all users of different backgrounds. These are really the questions that are coming to the fore now, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. For a while, we've kind of taken it as a given that to train larger and larger models, we just, 
need to collect more and more data. And this whole idea of data-centric AI is starting to maybe shift the conversation away from quantity alone to quality and other characteristics. And this concept of debt plays into into that. Can you talk about where debt comes into play? Yeah, sure. So, so we talk about debts. The most common one that we talk about is technical debt. And so technical debt is sort of this nice metaphor software engineers and software engineering community have developed to talk about sort of the costs that you incur from basically writing more code or creating more stuff. And those technical debts are often incurred, especially when you're trying to move quickly. And so if you've ever written some code super fast, maybe on a tight deadline, you might have noticed that maybe it didn't have all the comments that you would like it to have, or maybe it wasn't quite as well tested as you might have preferred, or maybe you did a little bit more copy and paste and a little less refactoring into a nice API. And all of those are, are costs, they're choices that you make under a certain set of circumstances, often when you need to move quickly now, and you're willing to maybe go back later and kind of pay off those costs at a later time that will allow you to do a better job of making sure that your system is maintainable over time and can be modified maybe by others who aren't you or, or things like that. <laughs> or future you. Yeah, or future you. I find that, that future me is, is often a really great person who's willing to take on all kinds of tasks. <laughs> but the past me as a real jerk has given me a lot of work to do. Anyway, so when we think about concepts of technical debt as they apply to data sets for machine learning, there's sort of this nice phrase that's kind of made the, the rounds, just that in machine learning systems, data takes the place of code. And it's kind of this nice, profound thing to think about because you're, you're saying, okay, we're defining the behavior of our systems that are learning from data on the data that we're providing them. So data is taking the place of code. The data that uh, we're providing then also has many of the qualities of code, which is that if we were to say double the amount of code that we're putting into a system, we might assume that we're also maybe doubling the number of behaviors that we're, we're asking our system to create or to exhibit, and thus maybe doubling the number of unit tests that we might need to, to put in, or maybe doubling the amount of documentation that we might have to put in. If we're doubling the amount of data that we throw at our models, it is reasonable to think that we might also be doubling the amount of verification that we need to do for our models and to be sure that they're doing the right thing. So one of my... Favorite examples of this in line with the GPT-3 model, so one of the first large language models to really make waves. And in the the original GPT-3 paper, they had this really wonderful result, which is that just training their large language model on text from the web with no special instructions, over time, it learned to do simple addition and arithmetic. Um, And they, they had wonderful plots showing how these behaviors emerged as more and more data was given to the system. And there are a couple of interesting things there. One is that they didn't design the system to do arithmetic. This was learned from the data that they gave it. Another is that the behaviors emerged at certain amounts of data. So you needed quite a lot of data to to see these things emerge. And then the last thing is that if you look at the plots in that paper, you'll notice that they weren't actually 100% accurate (laughs) at doing three-digit addition, even with many billions of examples, many billions of parameters. And so this is, I'm not picking on GPT-3 here. It's it's a a fantastic model and was a great advance for for the field. But in terms of the kinds of testing and verification that you would need to do to be confident that your model was going to do a great job at three-digit addition or four-digit addition or more complex uh, mathematics, you can imagine needing to, to go ahead and creating some formal tests for this of one form or another. 
and needing to to give get some level of assurance about what the qualities that this model is going to behave give over time. And obviously, addition is just one example. It's a, it's a really nice one to think about. But any model that we're throwing ever more amounts of data at, we're we're essentially doing so because we wanted to have ever more fine grained and specialized behaviors. Mm-hmm. And each of those specialized and fine-grained behaviors is one that it might do well or it might not. And if we really think it's important, we might want to check. And so in this sense, adding more and more data to our models, in some sense, creates an opportunity for debt that we'll want to pay off through all of the careful activities of testing and documentation and understanding what are the the capabilities of models in the long term. Mm -hmm. Does that example also explain why machine learning is much more difficult than traditional software from a testing and validation perspective. I'm thinking if you had an API that was adding two, three-digit numbers, you know, you'd probably test it on a few examples because if you get it right for a few three-digit number pairs, you probably it's probably working. Whereas in a probabilistic system or statistical system like a machine learning model, who knows where the errors are? Yeah, it's a great question, right? And so I think it's worth reflecting on the question of why do we do machine learning at all? Mm-hmm. And it's not because it's better or easier than traditional code-based systems. Right. It's because we use machine learning in situations where we don't actually know how to write down an algorithm in code that is going to have all of the correct behaviors. You know, we can't necessarily write all the if-then-elses for every single uh, situation that, say, a large language model is going to encounter. People tried that in the 80s and 90s, and it just it, it, it doesn't work, right? And so we use machine learning in situations where we can't have a formal verification of what it is we want our models to do. And that's the reason why it's so hard to then go back and say, okay, well, now what are the unit tests to apply to this? Because in some sense, the unit tests, unit testing overall is an idea of saying, okay, what are the behaviors that we have specified in advance, and we're going to make sure that those, those are going to exist. And this is why, you know, the whole field of machine learning has come around, developed and, and sort of founded on this idea of IID test sets. So mm-hmm. in traditional machine learning, if you want to write a NURBS paper, typically what you do is uh, you have a data set of training data, you randomly sample some portion of that to hold out as your test data, and both of those are, are from the same identically and independently drawn distribution. And the idea is that, okay, if we know that that distribution is the one that we care about, then doing these two independent draws from that same distribution means that if, if a behavior is important, it'll be represented very likely in both our test and our, t- our training data. And so we'll be able to verify that our model is doing the right thing on this distribution by having these two draws from that. Mm-hmm. And this is a really good idea. It works well when the distribution that we're drawing our training data from matches the distribution that it will be used on in practice. So in NURBS papers, this happens all the time, except for specialized cases where people are really probing. In the real world, it's quite difficult to have a training data set that matches exactly the data that will be encountered in, in practice, right? Mm-hmm. And we've seen all kinds of different ways that this can hold true. But just the simple observation that tomorrow is not necessarily a specialized case of yesterday is evidence that we're, we're going to have some amount of data set shifts. Yeah. And... The problem for this is that the IID test setting that, that is traditional was, was developed by the machine learning folks initially because there is this problem from statistics that correlation is not equal to causation. Right? We, we all know this to be true. Mm-hmm. And yet, 
the models that we build typically are ones that pick up exclusively on correlations in the data. And this would, of course, be terrible if those correlations didn't hold at test time. The IID test setting is one in which, because all of our data is IID, we don't have to worry about the distinction between correlational causal uh, factors. But the moment we have any amount of data set shift, now we do, we do run into situations where the differences between correlations and causation become much more relevant and much more meaningful. And so sort of the underlying assumption of machine learning, that typically that we're drawing IID test and training data, is sort of so steeped into us as machine learning researchers and people that it's one that we really need to, to force ourselves to recognize and, and reckon with on, on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are there specific patterns or failure modes that you see repeatedly in practice that are sources of data debt? You've mentioned kind of this fixation on historical data and assuming IID. Are there other patterns that you see? I think that looking at things like representativeness is a really nice nice lens to, to view some of these pieces on. And so representativeness, you know, we, we often talk about this in sort of like a, a fairness or a bias sense, where perhaps there's a, a group of users that might not be as well represented in the data. These kinds of issues are incredibly important, and there's a whole field and literature on this that folks other than me are much more qualified to, to talk on. But as a lens for thinking about the kinds of problems that can come up, when our, our data is not IID and when our data is not you know, drawn in a representative way, that's a really good, important one to be, be thinking of. The idea of representatives can also be thought of in sort of a, a counterfactual sense. So imagine that we're dealing with data that's coming from some recommender system. I don't know, you know we're building a shoe website. When two users type in certain kinds of shoes, we show them some shoes they might consider buying, you know, that, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. In this world, we'll often only get data on shoes that we've shown to users and ones that you know ranked not quite highly enough to show at the top of the page or not quite highly enough to be shown to users we probably don't have data on and this can lead to its own form of representation bias that is the sort of thing that can happen not only in shoe recommenders but in many different systems where we're looking at observational data to try and and understand the impacts of things that might not happen in practice as often or as well. Ideas of randomization can be really helpful there. So adding a little bit of explore to exploit can be extremely important in, in such situations to make sure that we're actively seeking out parts of the data space that wouldn't otherwise be well represented. Mm-hmm. And so when you kind of think about this kind of debt that machine learning systems are accruing, what are some of the things that we as a community or that you in particular in, in your projects have done to try to mitigate these issues? Yeah, so I, th- I think there's there's a lot that, that can be done. One that I'd really like to highlight is, is from uh, Timnika Brew. Her idea of data sheets for data sets and data cards is, I think, utterly fantastic and, and everybody should be doing it. Mm-hmm. So this is the idea that you know, when you buy an electronics component, there's a data sheet that comes with it that you know, can tell you, look, what are the qualities of your op-op amp? Where are the, the ranges of, of inputs and outputs? Where are you going to hit the rails and those kinds of things? Those data sheets are often dozens or even hundreds of pages. Mm-hmm. A data set should also have a data sheet that accompanies it, talking about the qualities of the data, where was it sourced, how was it sourced, what are its shortcomings, what kinds of things are in it, so that people can have a, a really clear understanding of what kinds of blind spots a model might encounter if it was trained on that data, what an appropriate use of that data might or might not be. 
A second is, I think it's really important that we have good processes for auditing data for quality. So for a machine learning person, it can feel like, oh gosh, I have to get my hands dirty with the data. And the answer is, well, yeah, you do. And so we've seen everything from folks working on, say, protein uh, discovery in wet labs, using data that comes from wet labs can often be incredibly noisy and, and understanding, you know, what is the quality of the data? What's the level of noise? You know, were there confounding factors? And that's true for things that look like wet lab data. It's equally true for cre- credit scoring or for mm-hmm. recommender systems or for anything in between. Having a, a deep sense of what's in the data and, you know, whether it's matching the appropriate levels of quality and qualities that we need. Mm -hmm. And when I hear you describe that, I think of kind of an exploratory EDA type of process where you're learning about the data. Do you also see more structured approaches that folks are taking to ensure high levels of data quality? Yeah, so I think in terms of structured pieces, like the data sheets are a good way to to bring structure to that exploratory piece. Mm-hmm. There's a whole additional approach that we can think about drawing from uh, the causal literature. And so, you know, who said before, hey, you know, our typical machine learning models don't know the difference between a causal factor and a non-causal factor. And at the same time, there's this whole world of of causal learning driven by folks like Judea Pearl and, and other other contributors in that area, who have an entire literature built up around this idea of a causal inference graph. Causal inference graphs are absolutely the true way to go about doing causal learning. And a causal inference graph is basically a way of writing down all of the ways that different factors might be causally linked to each other in in a, a data regime. And if you have one, and it's complete, and you can pay the computation cost for using it, then you're going to be all set. Problems are that typically a fully complete causal inference graph needs to come from an omniscient oracle. Those are often in short supply. And for it to be truly reliable, it also needs to be complete. And so these things may have you know, many, many factors, including things like what is the temperature of the sun that day or, or who knows what. And so in reality, it is much more common that we don't have a fully complete causal inference graph. But we do maybe have ways of talking with domain experts or other folks and at least writing down some useful number of nodes in a causal inference graph that might be imperfect, might be incomplete, but can still tell us some interesting things about a causal structure of our data world. And that then gives us a way to sort of look at our data and saying, okay, what are the correlations that we might need to make sure are broken in our data so that we can make sure not to be picking up only on a, on a specific correlation. And where might we want to create a stress test that specifically inverts a common correlation in our data to make sure that our model is still robust? So thinking of a causal inference graph not so much as a source of truth that our model is going to rely on exclusively, but as a useful formalism for writing down at least what we know about a, a given problem and making sure that we're being systematic about generating ways for, for testing those assumptions in, in some sort of stress test kind of format. Mm-hmm. Is the that approach of using causal inference graphs, is this something that you've worked with in your projects? Yeah, so we've done a bit of this. Some folks in my group, Victor Veach and his teammates in my group, had a paper at NURPS this last year on, on using causal invariance in this way. In that paper, they, they applied it to large language models as a nice way to to do stress testing. I think it's a, it's a pretty good idea. It's also one that I think can be applied much more generally. Can you talk a little bit about how it's applied in the context of large language models, if you're familiar with that paper? Yeah, so the basic idea is one of the nice things about text data 
is that it's reasonably easy to create counterfactual data. So you know, if the data that you had at hand mm-hmm. had the phrase, he is a doctor, appearing many, many times, it is relatively easy to create a you know, quote-unquote counterfactual piece of data that has the words, she is a doctor. And so using causal inference graphs to write down a set of invariants that we think should hold true, such as whether somebody's a doctor shouldn't depend on the uh, gender of the pronoun in, in the sentence, then allows you to go through and invert some of those commonly occurring pieces in the data set and allow you to, to do stress tests accordingly. Got it. Got it. And how does that type of, what's the kind of the end product of that type of stress testing? Yeah, so there are a couple pieces. One is that you can use this to create a suite of stress tests. And stress testing in general is one that you don't have to have a causal inference graph to start thinking of some useful stress tests for your model. But Mm -hmm. in general, putting together a suite of, of stress test data sets that explore and probe different behaviors or, or different edge cases for, for a model that are maybe different than what might be represented in an IID test set are you know, one way to, to give yourself sort of like the moral equivalent of a set of unit tests that you can be uh, working with and, and using to verify your models. Mm-hmm. The second is that you know, what this paper showed was that you can also then use some of these ideas of, of causal invariance as, as an additional regularizer in your model and, and maybe not just discover that your model wasn't so good in some of these situations, but then also, you know, use that as a way to, to help improve the model in the next iteration. Okay. And you were talking through some ideas around how we can address, you know, data debt or debt in machine learning systems from a data perspective. Are there others that come to mind? I think in general, really focusing on the discipline of model evaluation is uh, something that I think is incredibly important. You know, when you look at uh, some of the Recent papers that have come out on large language models, uh, Google released one on Palm just a couple of days ago, and it's, I forget exactly how many pages it was, but it was something like 80 pages. And most of it was really insightful, very detailed evaluations of different stress test use cases. Mm-hmm. I think this is kind of a model of how we should be looking at not just large language models, but, but all of the models that we create and being very careful and very thoughtful about using specialized data sets where we at least know what it is that we're, we're asking for and the kinds of behaviors that we're looking at to probe and ensure what our models are doing. Now, you might ask, okay, well, what, what happens if we don't have one of these special use cases around? There are some good ways to use the data that we already have to help probe. And there are two that, that I quite like. One is, so you're, you're familiar with uh, cross-validation and the idea of you know leaving out one out of many different folds from a data set and, and using your overall cross-validation as a way to get more statistical resolution on uh, goodness of the model. There's a slightly different technique that we could call leave one cluster out, where instead of creating our cross-validation folds by randomly, we first cluster our data Mm -hmm. before doing any training, and then do the moral equivalent of cross-validation, but instead of holding a fold out, we hold one of these clusters out. And so we're creating a a world in which our models explicitly have some blind spots. And that blind spot corresponds to a cluster that we then use as as test data. And if over the course of these, you know, evaluating over all of these different held out clusters, we're doing a good job, we can be reasonably sure that our model is is probably pretty robust and not just picking up on, on spurious correlations. A second form of this looks like slicing our evaluation data based on how close a given test example is to its nearest neighbor in the training data. And so 
you can imagine that if one of our given test examples is like an identical copy of an example in our training data, that being good on that is nice to see, but isn't really that useful or impressive. Not a great test example. If it's a little bit farther away, that gives us a little bit more confidence. If it's very far away from its nearest neighbor in the training data, then that's probably a pretty tricky example to get right. And if we're doing a good job on on that that kind of data, then then our model is probably pretty robust. And so spinning up our evaluation data based on how far each of those examples is from its nearest neighbor in the in the training data can be a way to help us begin to answer some of these questions of the level of robustness of our models. Mm-hmm even if we don't have any specialized data around. Does that assume a certain level of smoothness in the reward function or the the relationship between the points in the data set? So, you know, it's machine learning, right? There's always one hidden assumption that gets you. (laughs) I guess I'm asking more in practice, like, do, do you find that that is a overly limiting assumption or no more so than differentiability or other things that we have to deal with anyway? Yeah, so I think the the thing to focus on for this kind of evaluation is uh, what is the distance function that you're using to judge how far away a point is from its nearest neighbor in the, in the training data. Sometimes we have a distance function that makes a lot of sense. Like if we're dealing with proteins, using something like edit distance that's reasonably well established is great. Mm-hmm. In other cases, if we're dealing with images, we probably want to use some sort of image embedding. And there... You know, we probably don't want to have the embedding that we're using be like the embedding that we're learning at the same time. We probably want it to be independent in some way just so that we're not right. overly favoring one model or another. Yeah. But yeah, we will need to have some sort of distance function that makes sense. If we don't have a distance function that makes any kind of sense, then we probably have some more thinking to do about our problem overall. Mm-hmm. Have you explored techniques like active learning to address some of these issues? Active learning, I think, is one of the great underused machine learning methods. So in active learning, we're often gathering more data to to label based on some amount of uncertainty or disagreement or, or things like that from our current model. So we're trying to find the most informative data to add into a given model. For things like model evaluation, using ideas from active learning in an in evaluation sense can be extremely helpful. So there, you know, we're not necessarily using, say, model uncertainty to tell us which examples to go off and get new labels for, but maybe we're using some ideas of model uncertainty to tell us which examples will be most useful to focus on when trying to understand model failures or which examples might be most indicative of problem areas. Certainly, you know, using active learning to go off and gather additional data for helping to augment our model's capabilities for areas of the data space that might be underrepresented are, are of course, extremely helpful and useful as well. I think one last thing to say is that active learning can break down in areas where the things that we're looking for are incredibly rare. So active learning, and I came across this in the world of, of you know, machine learning for spam detection. You know, when, when spam is a 10% problem, then active learning can save you a tremendous amount of, of problems. When your spammers are like crazy, clever, and weird, and rare, and they're more like 0.0001% of the world, then active learning can still show you an awful lot of unuseful or uninteresting data before you finally find a couple of hits. Mm-hmm. And there, I think Josh Attenberg had a paper on this maybe 15 years ago. One of the things that can help be helpful there is, is not so much a purely model-based human agnostic active learning, but more of a model-assisted exploration. And using uh, machine learning or maybe some learned distances to help build exploratory tools to help you know smart humans go and find 
the most useful uh, examples, you know, either as stress tests or as counterfactuals or things like that. Mm-hmm. And, and all this sort of speaks to the idea that just as a couple of decades ago, people realized that if you have computers and you have humans, maybe there should be a, a field of human-computer interaction yeah. that, that helps to figure out how these, these two very different entities should be interacting with each other. We're probably getting towards a world where there should be some sort of field of human data interaction that, that really focuses on you know, tools and best practices and methods for people to be interacting with data in a way that, that helps individual humans make sense of data sets of size, billions or, or larger. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How, how far along are you, how far along do you think we are in you know, having the tools that we need to approach the kinds of problems you're envisioning? I, I think we're still relatively early days. I think that talking to a fully licensed statistician can be a really illuminating experience because you know <laughs> the statistics people have known about the importance of data for forever. And as with most things in machine learning, uh, the statistics people were right all along. But one of the differences is that the sizes of data sets that folks are dealing with in current machine learning are so large that I think that they make it difficult to apply many of those traditional practices of exploratory data analysis and, and things of that form. And I think that we we do need to really focus on tools and techniques that allow us to, you know, explore and comprehend data sets of the current size. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thinking about debt in the financial sense, it's a number. In the code sense, there are proxies like code coverage and, and other things. Are there metrics that you think can be proxies for understanding the level of data debt in the system? Does, does that make sense? Is there anything there? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And I, I do think it's important to say that you know, technical debt is a metaphor. It's, it's not a metric. Sure. For me, the best proxy is how are you feeling about your model? <laughs> and are, are you starting to get worried? And what are the issues that are, are keeping you up at night when, when you're thinking about your model's performance or ability to be deployed in a production setting? Overall, things that are indicative of technical debt and code based systems are often long term metrics. Like, how easy is it to create a change in the system? How easy is it for someone else to modify the system or improve the system? How often do we get you know, paged in the middle of the night when something breaks or when there's an outage? And I think all of those kinds of questions can be reasonably asked in machine learning systems and models as well. Mm-hmm. Any additional thoughts on data debt that we haven't covered yet? No, I mean, you know, more than anything, I, I think it's, it's pretty exciting to be living in the world in which training a model isn't that hard. And, and the hard part is putting the, the data together because... I think that this is actually going to be a world that opens the field up to folks with all kinds of different backgrounds and insights. You need a reasonably specialized set of skills to build a modeling platform. I think it's a relatively different set of skills to think about collecting and uh, curating um, the appropriate data sets and to to think about the right ways to be evaluating stress testing your models. I really think that it's up to us as a community to make sure that we're being open to, to a broad variety of perspectives on that. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Dee, thanks so much for taking the time to share a bit about your uh, the work you've been doing on characterizing data debt. Great. Thanks so much. Appreciate the time. Thank you. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, 
If you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.